Talk Money is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <coughs> For updates, further breakdowns, and past episodes of this podcast, sign up at thetalkmoney.com. If you enjoy our podcast, help us get the word out. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to help us reach more ears. And now you can sign up for our newsletter, where we curate the best money topics of the week from across the internet. It's quick, informative, and most importantly, fun. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com slash newsletter. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Talk Money Weekly. I'm your host, Mesh, and we're going to do something a little bit different this week. We're launching a new show called Better Call Paul, and I want you to be the first to hear it. Better Call Paul is a new show where I co-host with my good friend Paul Sarker, who's an entertainment lawyer, who's worked on everything from the Marvel movies, he's worked at Disney, he represents all sorts of clients in the entertainment industry, and as a pop culture enthusiast, I'm just really curious to know what happens behind closed doors on the legal side, on the business side, and Paul gives us his inside scoop. Enjoy the first episode of Better Call Paul. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Better Call Paul, the show where we talk about all things entertainment, but specifically the business and legal side behind the glitz, glam, and scandals. And we give you the inside scoop about what's happening behind closed doors. I'm your co-host, Paul Starker, veteran entertainment and media lawyer and former Marvel attorney. And I'm your co-host, Mesh Lakani, founder of Lola Media, pop culture enthusiast. And here, honestly, just to ask Paul all the questions I've been wanting to know of what is happening in Hollywood and entertainment because Paul's got the inside scoop. He is the lawyer and we're going to learn a lot on the show. So Paul, let's start it off with a little bit of Oscar talk. We're going to talk about what's going on with the Oscars, how it relates to the streaming services. I'm going to dive down this list of the best Oscar nominees and then let's jump into it. Okay, let's jump into it. All right, so Paul, let's start this off. Let's talk about the Oscars, given that Oscar nominations just came out, everyone's talking about it, or maybe nobody's talking about it. But uh, I think it's interesting to talk about, given that a lot of things have changed with streaming, with theatrical releases. I wanted to get your take. These are the current nominees. Let's just focus on the best picture. These are the best picture noms for the Oscars. We got Licorice Pizza, we got Belfast, we got Dune, Drive My Car, Don't Look Up, Coda, King Richard, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. Why does it feel like there's more nominees this year than ever before? That's a lot of movies. Paul, which ones have you watched? So I've only, I think I've seen Dune. A great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. But if your answer is no... You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. King Richard. And those are probably the only two nominees that I've seen. Okay. So, yeah, I've seen Dune, King Richard. I really wanted to see Power of the Dog. It hasn't happened yet. Maybe it'll happen tonight after the Super Bowl or before. And don't look up. You know, I'm all about climate change. I haven't had a chance to see it. But I think the reason that you're seeing so many nominees is because... They expanded the Best Picture nom from 5 to 10 recently. And another sort of legal development is historically, the Oscars have always required theatrical release to be considered to be eligible. And last year, when the theaters were closed for like seven or eight months, they relaxed that requirement. The Academy said that 
movies that were intended for theatrical release but didn't make it and were released solely on streaming were still eligible. And for 2022, they kept that policy in place. And they've said that this is not a long-term change and that theatrical releases will still be required when business returns to normal. So that's why when you look at the list, there's a lot of movies that actually didn't really crush it in theaters, but that's kind of the Oscars thing, right? That historically, they haven't had big budget, very successful movies as their nominations. But I love King Richard. So yeah, that's probably my vote of the ones I've seen. These girls so great, how come I've never heard them? They're from Compton. It's okay. They're just not used to seeing good-looking peoples like us. I think you might just have the next Michael Jordan. Oh, no, brother man. I got me the next, too. King Richard was awesome. I loved King Richard. I think Will Smith totally deserves the Oscar there. It's nice to see him make a comeback, given he's been... You know, it's hit or miss with this guy when it comes to stuff in, in movie land. But King Richard was amazing. It didn't do that well in theaters. I think it only made, like, $6 million opening weekend. But it was on HBO at the time. Another interesting thing is that, you know, some of these movies, like Power of Dog was on Netflix. I watched it. I just watched it for, like, the Benedict Cumberbatch performance. Kirsten Dunst was really good in it, too. It was a very slow movie. I think four of their actors got nominated. Yeah, and I, I think rightfully so. Dune, I thought, was a beautiful movie, beautifully done movie. Coda was amazing. I loved Coda. That was an Apple TV original. Really, really great movie. I was happy that it was nominated. Yeah, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I fucking hated Licorice Pizza. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands. Like the ocean, like beaches. Barbara Streisand? Sand? No, like Streisand. Sand. I was like, I, I just didn't understand. I, I saw that there was potential in it. I went and watched it in the theater. I went and watched it in the theater, and I was kind of like, uh, I, I don't know what this movie's doing. Which goes back to like why I like watching these things in streaming is like, I'm not going to go to watch Power of the Dog in the theater unless it was nominated for an Oscar. Right, you're not committed. Yeah, I just like, I'm like, yeah, do I want to go in here or not? I did watch Don't Look Up in the theater, though. We discovered a very large comet. Oh, good for you. It's headed directly towards Earth. <laughs> There's a 100% chance that we're all going to die. Well, the handsome astronomer can come back anytime, but the yelling lady, not so, not so much. And I had a blast. I thought it was a fun movie. Whatever you like about it or not, I thought it was fun. But it is interesting, like, you know, this balance of your whole point about theatrical releases. That's why The Irishman was released in the theater, I guess, because they want to get nominated for an Oscar. Like, you won't be able to otherwise. Yeah, you wouldn't. So in the past, prior to COVID, you could have the most sort of successful, best movie ever, right? Or in any given year, if you didn't have a theatrical release, it wasn't eligible for the Oscars. And the streaming platforms, Netflix, Amazon, have been fighting this rule for a couple of years because they're like, this discriminates against their platforms. They're not in the theatrical business. They're investing a ton into content. And if they can't win Oscars, then they're at a disadvantage. So They've been fighting this probably since 2016, 2017, but the Oscars never, they never made a change. However, in 2021, in response to theaters being closed for so long, they relaxed the requirement and said, if it was a straight to streaming release that never had theatrical release contemplated, it wouldn't qualify for the exception. But if you had plans to release theatrically and then those plans got derailed by COVID, because let's be clear. I mean, it takes a certain level of investment and marketing to release a film in theaters. So, you know, let's say a movie costs $100 million to produce. It probably costs another $20 million to release it theatrically if you're on the low end, if you want to do all the marketing 
and get it out there. And so it's not an easy undertaking. And I think the Oscars probably use that as sort of a filter to say, well, it's got to be at least theatrical release because that's some baseline level of gravitas for a film. Well, let me ask you a question. Now, given that the Oscars are like, okay, streaming movies, it's an issue for them. They won't do big budgets. We can get into why Spider-Man No Way Home was not nominated they're not nominate. They're having you know diversity issues, even though they brought more people in the academy to like you know help with creating more diversity amongst nominees. It seems like they haven't really figured out a lot of this yet. What is really the benefit? Is there a benefit from winning an Oscar from a business standpoint? Like, can you get more money? Is it easier for you to like raise money for financing? Why do the studios care? Is it just prestige? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's prestige, and it is sort of the industry's way of rating itself, right? And so it's uh, absolutely prestige, but it has huge economic consequences and more so back in the day. I remember when I was negotiating actor, writer, director deals, there was always an Academy Awards bonus or even just a nomination, right? So let's say an actor's making $2 million on a picture. You may get a bonus for getting nominated for an Academy Award of like, I don't know, 250000 if you win it, maybe 500000 or 750000 So there was a lot of money in it if you won an award. And that's why if you're doing a talent deal, you want the studio to be committed to doing a wide release and theatrical release to give yourself the best opportunity to win that Oscar. And then, of course, if you win, that sets the table. That puts you in another stratosphere of talent, and that raises your ability to negotiate for more money on your next deal. So... That's basically what it's about, right? Just like any award, like the Grammys or anything like that. I mean, once you win, you're sort of verified and it can be sort of a career achievement. But the Oscars, and I think I'm not alone in saying this, they've been getting less and less socially relevant because they were ignoring very successful films. For example, we'll talk about Spider-Man in a bit. They've had diversity issues, which are well-documented. And I think a lot of people feel like the best picture doesn't always win and the best actor or actress doesn't always win. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to watch it, to be honest. Like, I, it also seems like just in general with COVID and everything, the production's not as big. And and one of the biggest things about the, the Academy Awards is like, we're not going to have that many big stars, you know, in this one, given that they didn't nominate some of them. I think that people were excited that Lady Gaga, I haven't seen House of Gucci nor have I heard much about her performance, but if Lady Gaga is nominated, now you got Lady Gaga at the Oscars. Who knows what comes with that? Ben Affleck wasn't nominated, therefore, you know, I know J-Lo at the Oscars. Like, it's not a star-studded event. So we'll see. But I think, honestly, Spider-Man should have... I mean, Spider-Man was not only an amazingly done movie, box office hit, great performances. I know besides Black Panther, superhero movies don't get nominated but that one seemed like that was the biggest movie of the year. I saw it twice in theaters. By far, yeah. Biggest. And it was great. It was like a great movie. Did you watch it? Uh, I did. And I liked it. And I, listen, I, I like all the Marvel movies. I get why I get why some critics feel like it's a little bit formulaic and they don't want to sort of reward this franchising of Hollywood. But at the same time, I think you have to acknowledge that the, the dollars speak for themselves. I mean, it was far and away the most successful movie probably the last three years. And to say that it wasn't in the top 10 of the year, I think it's just, it's standing on ceremony. If you're the Oscars, I think you're not nominating it out of spite. It was a great movie. I understand maybe Eternal, Shang-Chi, you know, you're not going to nominate all three, but Spider-Man definitely should have been nominated in my opinion. And I think that's part of the, you know, the younger crowd, the people that watch movies and the fact that movies are growing on social media and TikTok and that's, you know, driving in Kanto, 
it's this disconnect between the people who are sort of nominating and judging the Oscars and the young fans that are watching most of the movies, certainly the most of the movies that are going to theaters this year. Let's get to our main subject of today's episode, our first ever episode of Better Call Paul. But one of the themes that we're constantly talking about is the streaming wars. And in this regard, we're talking to movies on the streaming platforms and deals amongst them. One of the Oscar nominees, the movie Nightmare Alley, which is Bradley Cooper and Kate Blanchett. I haven't watched it yet. And it's directed by Guillermo del Toro. I'm a fan of all of them. I love Kate Blanchett. Oh, same here. Huge Kate Blanchett fan. That is my absolute long-term Hollywood crush slash mad respect for her. She's amazing. Haven't seen it yet, but I think one of the interesting things in regards to how this conversation goes is it's actually on two streaming platforms. It's on HBO Max and it's on Hulu because of whatever the Disney-Fox relationship is, which just goes again. It's like these things are getting really complicated. I would love to learn from you, like how is that even possible? Why are they doing stuff like that? Doesn't that become like a conflict of interest between the two studios or streaming platforms? And I think we start off with Nightmare Alley and, and go down that road. Yeah, absolutely. So to your point, yeah, it is. It's incredibly complicated. So I think there's probably two factors at work, and we can talk about them separately. So the first is the concept of exclusive licenses, right? So when you are a movie studio, in this case, Nightmare Alley was produced by Searchlight Pictures, which used to be Fox Searchlight, which is owned by Fox, which is now owned by Disney. And let's say 10 years ago, five years ago, when this movie, probably five years ago, when this movie was being sort of greenlit and thought about and written, Fox Searchlight was owned by Fox, not owned by Disney. Fox did not have its own streaming platform, but it did have a minority interest in Hulu. So the streaming rights in Fox Searchlight Pictures were probably likely to go to Hulu. But at some point in the recent past, Warner and Disney reached some sort of co-exclusive agreement where a bunch of movies, not just Nightmare Alley. I think it also includes uh, West Side Story, Free Guy, The French Dispatch. Those movies are going to be split between HBO Max and Hulu, or maybe even Disney+. Plus. And part of this, really the confusing thing, is who owns what. Right. So in the past, Hulu was co-owned by Fox, Disney, NBC, and there was a minority stake that was held by a private equity firm. And then that all shifted because NBC was bought by Comcast. So then it was Fox, Comcast, Disney, and then this private equity firm. Then the private equity firm sold its shares. And eventually Time Warner got it. So there was Fox, Disney, Time Warner, NBC. Then Comcast bought NBC. So it was Fox, Comcast, NBC, Time Warner. Then Time Warner got bought by AT&T. And so you imagine how all these different permutations that AT&T owns it. Then AT&T sold their share to Disney because AT&T was focused on HBO Max. I don't know this for a fact because I haven't read the contract, but I assume part of that deal was AT&T said, hey, you got to give us a certain amount of movies to help us get HBO Max off the ground. So what they probably worked out was a several-year arrangement where movies would be on both Hulu and HBO Max in order for Disney to get AT&T's stake in Hulu. And eventually, I think Disney will control all of Hulu. I think that's basically a fait accompli, but... It doesn't change the fact from the consumer's perspective. Explain what that means. So it doesn't make sense. So right now, Comcast and Disney both own Hulu. 
Right. But it doesn't make sense for Comcast and Disney to work together on Hulu. They are competitors, right? Comcast owns NBC. Disney owns ABC. Comcast has Peacock. Disney has Disney Plus and Hulu. They both have their respective properties and universes. So Comcast and Disney don't really want to work together for the success of Hulu. So what Comcast is saying is like, hey, Disney, you have 67% of Hulu. We have the other third. We'll sell you our third. You control it. You manage it. Because if Hulu's wildly successful, that's great for Disney. It's okay for Comcast. But I don't think Comcast would, long-term, cares about the success of Hulu. I think it'd rather have Peacock be the dominant streaming platform. So they don't want to run two competing services. So eventually, they will sell their stake in Hulu back to Disney, and Disney will control 100% of it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's interesting just again because it's all gotten pretty confusing from a who owns what, where things are streaming, what they're streaming on. Something streams somewhere, then they get they get finished there. They go to another platform. But I guess what we're understanding is that these are the in the beginning days everyone was sharing things and investing in this together, and now everyone wants to dominate and they want to own their own streaming platform outright. It seems that you know Disney is already an owner of not only. Disney Plus, but then ESPN in ESPN Plus, if I'm clear, and then obviously their majority share in Hulu, hence why you can get like a a package deal amongst those things, which I have personally, by the way, and then it doesn't remember my fucking password on one of the other ones, and I think now I'm paying like multiple subscriptions and the bundle on top of it, and I have no idea how to fix that. Yeah, you need a password manager for sure. (laughs) So you're right. Disney has Disney Plus. They have Hulu. They have ESPN Plus, and you can get all three of them for one price, or you can get one or the other, but basically, they're driving people to buy all three. And what they say is, like, they hit different segments of the market. Like, Hulu is a general entertainment, ESPN Plus is for sports fanatics, and Disney Plus is for kids and families. And so, you know, long run, maybe they they don't coexist, maybe they all get merged, but for right now, you know, Disney's... Disney's been so focused on streaming for like three years now. It's it's crazy because Netflix was eating their lunch for a while, especially because they had the Marvel movies. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how like, yes, the streaming platforms and, and the studios are all competing amongst each other, but it comes down to the producers and the you know actors, actresses who get sometimes screwed over or upset in terms of how some of these deals work. And I think one of the big stories right now is that the Matrix Resurrections... Thomas, you seem particularly triggered right now. Can you tell me what happened? I've had dreams that weren't just dreams. Am I crazy? After all these years, to be going back to where it all started. Back to the Matrix. Matrix 4, which was a Village Roadshow production, is in a lawsuit with Warner Brothers and Warner Media when it comes to the whole fact that it was released in theaters and on HBO at the same time. Even though it's supposed to be released in theaters in 2022, they made it an earlier release so that it was in both places at the same time. Obviously, we saw the same thing happen with Black Widow when Scarlett Johansson sued Disney. I'd love to figure out what's going on there, and you can tell us like why they make these decisions, and then do these lawsuits have any, are they something? Like, can they sue each other like that? It's a very interesting question. I mean, as you said, there's uh, there's no shortage of this sort of dynamic happening. Uh, I think you have to first understand the economic landscape, right? So when this movie was done, I assume, I don't know, I haven't read any of the contracts, just as a disclaimer, but Matrix 
was made by Village Roadshow, or Village Roadshow was at least a co-producer, and they had a distribution deal with Warner Brothers. And most likely that predated the pandemic. So Village Roadshow's deal, or most of these deals say something like, we'll deliver a movie to you, we won't spend more than X on the budget, and you agree to spend Y marketing it and releasing it theatrically, and we'll split the money, right? 70-30 or 80-20 or whatever the split is, so they both have a piece of the back-end theatrical revenue, right? So they spend whatever they spend. You take out all the production costs, the marketing costs. You subtract that from what comes in, and then you divide it. And that's basically how these deals work. Now, Warner, they've got different incentives now because they have to drive the growth of HBO Max. And no one saw this coming when the pandemic started, but HBO Max, the CEO of Warner Brothers, said, hey, in 2021, every movie we make and release for theaters is going to be released on HBO Max at the same time. And what this is intended to do is drive the growth of HBO Max, because if HBO Max grows from 10 million to 20 million to 50 million to 100 million subs, then the value of that company is astronomical, right? Like, look at Netflix. When it has 150 million subs, its stock is at five, six, seven hundred dollars a share, right? Now it's starting to yeah. come back. But the subscriber base is what these companies are valued by. And the subscriber base of HBO Max really has no impact on the value of the movie, The Matrix Resurrections, to Village Roadshow. So there's a complete difference in incentives here. So Village Roadshow wants The Matrix to make the most money possible in theaters, and Warner Brothers wants to drive the growth of HBO Max. So they're really their incentives are not aligned, and that's what led to this lawsuit. Here's the other thing. Did you watch Matrix 4? So to be honest, I did not watch Matrix 4. I loved Matrix 1. I loved it so much that I watched Matrix 2 and Matrix 3, and I was disappointed by 2 and crushed by 3. And I love Keanu Reeves. I love Lawrence Fishburne, but I just, I, I'm over it because the first movie was so good. It was like genre-defining I don't want to say life-changing. I think people overuse that word, but I love the first Matrix. And then I got, I rallied all my friends to see the second and the second was okay. The third was not that good. And like, I got laughed at for dragging people to the third. So I'm over it with the fourth. Did you see it? I think that was exactly how my college days went. It was pre-college. I saw Matrix 1, amazing movie. I was in Pakistan and we watched it on a pirated like cassette you know, because that's how we got our films there back then. Hey, don't tell me. I'm an entertainment lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Don't pirate anything. And then Matrix 2 and Matrix 3, you watched in theaters in college, and I remember being like, man, these movies suck. Matrix 2 had its moments. Yeah, yeah, the car scene, the albino twins, yeah. Yeah, yeah, were, yeah like, exactly. Matrix 3 was like, what the hell am I watching? It was awful. And then, you know, we put on Matrix 4. I'm sitting with my family. I wanted to go see it in theaters. It's Omicron. Which is funny because I was going to say, like, well, Omicron probably affected people going to the theaters. And you reminded me, actually, earlier when we were chatting. Yeah, that, it didn't stop people from seeing Spider-Man, yeah. No, and I saw Spider-Man twice in the height of Omicron. I was double-masked in there, cheering my ass off. And Matrix 4, I watched late night with the fam. Nobody knew what the hell was going on, first of all. I love Keanu Reeves. I love Carrie Ann Moss. But um, the movie was bad. It was a bad movie. Well, so here's the thing. You're not going to get a contract that says we promise to make a good movie, right? Yeah. Like no one's going to guarantee a certain amount of performance. Yeah, okay. But the breach, the argument is that it never had a chance to dominate in theaters the way they expected it to because anyone that really wanted to see it was just going to watch it on HBO Max and it cannibalized. And it's interesting, you know, about this legal, the legal side of it, Warner Brothers' response to the lawsuit is, 
hey, pound sand, you don't even have the right to sue us in court. If you have a dispute, you have to arbitrate it. And that's confidential and it's binding. And so, you know, none of this is supposed to be public. They can't sue them in California court or wherever they tried to sue them. They're just going to try to get it dismissed. And these binding arbitration clauses, we read about it all the time because they are generally enforceable. uh, And a lot of studios and employers are putting them into their contracts to things like sexual harassment cases and, you know, other workplace misconduct don't see the light of day, right? Because the last thing they want is the negative PR that's associated with a public lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, so it goes back to Black Widow, same thing with Scarlett Johansson suing Disney. Black Widow was technically the end of her, from a fan standpoint, I guess that was closing in on the end of the Black Widow era with Scarlett Johansson. But because they released the movie on Disney Plus and in theaters at the same time, it affected her pockets potentially, and I would love to learn from you how that works. But, you know, technically, Black Widow did okay. It was, at one point, the best movie during COVID from a box office standpoint. It did $183.5 million domestically, $196 million internationally. So it made a total of uh, $379.5 million. Which is really not that great for a Marvel movie. I mean, that's low for Marvel. I guess. So, like, the argument is that if they had not released it on streaming, it would have done better in the box office and she would have potentially made more money. Exactly. I mean, this is, I have not worked at Marvel since 2015, so I have no direct involvement into this dispute or how it was resolved. But I suspect that her deal said something about a wide theatrical release and she was expecting it to be theatrical only, meaning not streaming, or if it was going to be streaming, like not for three months after it was released theatrically. So once all the people that wanted to see it paid their 20 bucks to see it in theaters, then they could put it on Disney Plus to drive growth. But the powers that be at Disney, they probably looked at the contract and were like, can she stop us? They decided she couldn't. And they went where they said, okay, well, we need to drive Disney Plus. Because if you remember when this happened, Disney stock was getting crushed Disney hasn't had a great year stock-wise because people haven't been going to the parks, because a lot of things have been delayed. Subscriber growth has been slow. And so, you know, whatever they can do to grow their subscriber numbers, they need to do that. So I assume there was probably a shred of an argument there, but it was a calculated risk for Disney to put Black Widow in theaters at the same time as it was on Disney Plus as opposed to giving it like an exclusive window because they gave an exclusive window to Shang-Chi, right? And so Shang-Chi was not on Disney Plus for about 45 days until after it was in theaters. But wasn't that because of the whole stuff that went down with Black Widow and, and Scarlett Johansson? Like, didn't they at that point know what they should do? I don't know. I don't know if it was because of that. I think that decision was probably made in advance, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I would only be speculating. You know, I have no idea how much they paid Scarlett, but I think if I were representing an actor or a director with leverage to in order to ensure something like this didn't happen, I think there's probably maybe two avenues I would take. One is you negotiate for a guaranteed theatrical release that is exclusive, right? So wide theatrical release, meaning at least 4,000 theaters, domestic and international, And it can't be on any other platform for two months, let's say, because typically the theatrical window is about 45 days. That's when 90% of the money comes in. That's going to come in from sort of box office. And so I would try to protect that window. And if you can't win that, which I don't know that you're going to win that, it depends on your leverage, I would try to ask for some percentage or some bonus that's tied to how many times it's streamed on the service. Now, you're not always going to get those optics, 
right? Like for example, Netflix or Amazon, they don't need to tell you how many times someone streamed the show. But if you wanted to say, hey, I understand that part of this is you want to drive your own platform and I'm not trying to stop you from doing that, but every time someone sees it should be treated as a theatrical sale, right? Like, so let's just say if it gets streamed 10 million times in your platform, then I want $200 million added to my, for purposes of satisfying my box office bonus thresholds, right? Because it's, it's a, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ticket price times however many people yeah. stream it. So treat it as, as if it were a ticket that was sold. I don't know that you'll get that, but that's kind of how you would sort of align the incentives. Well, then it's, I mean, it's much simpler for like a Netflix and Don't Look Up, right? Because even though it was released in theaters, it was limited theaters, probably for the sake of the Oscar argument. Because I had seen it in theaters in New York and it was at like the one theater that, first of all, I didn't even know this theater existed and it was the only one playing Don't Look Up. Nice theater, by the way. It's, it's near the new school in, um, yeah, near Union Square. And uh, I watched it in there before it came out. Was it AMC? It wasn't an AMC. It was like one of those super indie theaters okay, yeah. that people like host events at and stuff. And then it came out on Netflix like for the holidays. So like I, we had watched it pre-holidays, which was interesting because that's when everybody else watched it. Because like nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. Like, have you seen Don't Look Up? Like, we're, that's not even out yet. But it seems more simple, right? Because you're paying... I think in this case, Jennifer Lawrence, 20 mil, Leo got 25 mil. That's just a straight up like, here's your money, and we're going to spend a ton of money on on getting this talent on board. But I assume that there's probably nothing when it comes to streams, even though I've got to imagine that it did pretty well from a streaming standpoint. So yeah, the business has definitely changed. And what I'm seeing is that, let's say back in the day, if you made a movie for Disney, or even a TV show, this also applies to TV shows. Like there's, you know, the creators of Seinfeld are all on the verge of being billionaires, right? Because they had a back end yeah. in the show that hit syndication and they still make money when that show is aired, right? So right. you can think of it as a lottery ticket. If you make a TV show or film back in the day and you had a meaningful back end, like of, on gross, and the show or movie was a huge hit for the studio, let's say it was something that would, I don't know, make a billion dollars for the studio talent with a significant back end could make 10% of that, right? And so it yeah. was meaningful, but it was also a lottery ticket. So most shows, most TV shows and movies don't make a profit. And what studios do is they use the handful of home runs they hit every year to finance their slate and to finance development. And so that that was the deal. It's like, hey, if you're a star and you negotiate a back end and your work leads to us becoming phenomenally successful, then you become phenomenally successful as well. Yeah. And there was creative accounting and all that, but if it was a massive hit, then everyone won. And the odds are that it wasn't going to be a massive hit, but if it was, great, congrats, your lottery ticket hit. With Netflix and streaming, they control all the analytics. And so what they do is they basically pay you a ton up front, right? No one has said that Netflix is cheap. They, they pay you, but they don't share in the back end. So if it's a phenomenal success... That's on them. They get to keep that. You get handsomely paid up front, which is probably, you know, accounts for the fact that you're leaving a little bit of back end on the table. And then most of the times that's a fair deal, right? Because you you have the guarantee of your upfront comp being high and you, you know, you're not taking the risk. Cause if it let's say you take a little bit less money as apparently Black Widow did, and then the movie is a bomb, right? Okay, then nothing, no harm, no foul. If you take a little bit less money and the movie's a runaway hit, then you left money on the table, then you're frustrated. Yeah. In some cases, talent can, in theory, do better 
with a Netflix model if the movie is or, or show is not a runaway hit. And it's easier to administer because then you don't have to get into audit rights and accounting your profits to the talent. Well, yeah. I mean, it seems like um, it's going to be interesting to see like when either this is just a temporary scenario for the next two years or year or however long it ends up being. We go back to normal with like, hey, we're back at box office numbers, but stream. I mean, it seems like we're used to as an audience. Like, I do want the ability to stream. I was actually frustrated when I couldn't stream one of the movies I wanted to watch because like, I don't know if I want to go in theaters or it's limited release in theaters. Oh my God, yeah, Belfast. I want to watch Belfast. You can't see it. You got to go to theater. You can't see it? I think you can rent it now or whatever, no? Well, you can rent it, but that's like 20 bucks. You can't just, it's not oh, in a yeah, platform. Oh yeah, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they, It's funny because I, I wanted to watch Belfast too and I was like, why is this so difficult? But it's, you know, it's funny. Like, I do like going to the theater. I do like, I go to the movies a lot by myself. It's my escape and release. And I, funny enough, I went and watched Jackass the other day. And it was- How was it? I had the time of my life. I love Jackass as a franchise. I was laughing my ass off. Yeah. Everyone in the theater, it was a good Monday or Tuesday in Williamsburg, in Brooklyn. I didn't think anyone was going to be there. There was actually like, you know, 15, 20 people, which I thought was like, a decent amount yeah and we all had a blast dude they are so funny and i was like so happy for jackass like i was like good for them you know yeah no they're hilarious i can't wait to see it because they're from pennsylvania most of them are from the same part of pa that i'm from and i imagine they were just growing up doing you know stupid shit in high school and middle school and now they're finally turning it into a content empire or they'd have sorry not finally they've, they've turned it into a content empire but good for them, man. They're they're hilarious. I, I would love to see it. But I haven't been to theaters. The only theatrical movie I saw this year was Free Guy, and that's because I went to the premiere because one of my clients was in it. So oh. <laughs> I'm not like going back to theater. But I would love to go back. It's just it's But Free Free Guy is one of by the way, Free Guy, I mean, as you know, I'm like I love I love how I'm telling you. You're the one who probably did the deal, Paul. Free Guy is on two plat was on two platforms as well, wasn't it? Free Guy, uh, yeah, it's under the same scenario. So it was produced by Fox, but it's also uh, going to be on HBO Max in addition to Hulu so and, and Disney+. Plus. So Free Guy is sort of in that ecosystem, which, I, like I said, I haven't seen the deal, but I assume it was part of the sale of AT&T's interest in Hulu back to Disney. It was probably some commitment to get a certain number of movies on HBO Max. You know, it's funny because... Free Guy's also nominated for an Oscar, I think, for visual effects or sound, one of the two. Yeah, visual effects. It was cool. I mean... Yeah, the visual effects are cool. I, you know, the movie was... I mean, I don't want to... This is your clients. So I don't want to disrespect them. Like, I, I went to the... Again, one of my solo theater outings to watch Free Guy, and I think a part of me was, like, looking around, like, what, what am I watching right now? But I was entertained. I was entertained. I liked it. I liked it. I thought the... You know, pleasantly surprised, but, you know, that's the thing about going to the theater... Like, it could be an average movie, but when you're in there, it's your only focus. You're there with your friends, maybe or maybe not, but it's like, it's a good time, right? It doesn't have to be the best movie ever, but it's still a good time, and it's an escape, like you said. Streaming it at your house is not the same escape. It's easier, it's more convenient, and it's obviously less of a health risk, but it's not the same as going, like, taking your family out or going no. out with friends to see a movie. It's not an event in that way. And I hope we get back to, like, the event because I was watching Power of the Dog and I think I, it took me, like, double the time to watch it because I would stop, take a break, go cook dinner, come back, start watching it. I'm, like, just trying to get through this fucking movie. But I did go <laughs> was see... Was it not good? It was, it was just really... It was, like, really long and I was trying to, I was, like, trying to figure out, like, what, the, what is the point here? Like, what's happening? I wonder... 
What little lady made these? Actually, I did, sir. My mother was a florist. Oh, well, do pardon me. They're just as real as possible. But the acting was like, I do like those acting adventures too. You're like, oh my God, the acting is pretty good here. I think I felt the same way about Dune. Like it was just really beautifully done. And I thought I really liked the characters and the acting. I know people had a problem with it, but like I, I enjoyed it. I, I could not make it through the entire movie. Dune. I mean, my, my fiance loved it in, in full disclosure. It's not a bad movie. I just, it was so slow. Like whatever even happened was Zendaya in it. I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> yeah it, she wasn't. it was a great movie. It was a great concept, and I guess they've they they've agreed to do the second one, which you know is what it is. But it's beautiful for sure. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited to see it. I'll, I'll be watching it. You know, I look forward to watching Dune two and and seeing what comes out in in the coming. I I mean, look, I I just want to go to the theater. I want to go watch, have fun. I went and saw Scream, the new Scream movie, which was fucking awesome it was such a blast to watch in the theater everyone was like shrieking and stuff so there's always like i think again it has to come down to like is this something that you want to watch i walked out of french dispatch i walked out of mary saint new york whatever the fucking movie was with the sopranos prequel and i ended up watching it later at home finished it on hbo max so like I guess it's one of those things where I'm like I could just leave this place and go watch it at home. How many movies did you see in theaters this year or in 2021? I saw quite a lot. Like more than 10? Probably 10 or wow. right under 10. Like if it's something that I'm really excited about, I'll go watch and I'll usually go clearly I'm just going to the movies by myself because I have no fucking friends or nobody wants to watch a movie with me, but I do sometimes Well, 10's a lot. <laughs> yeah, like if someone wants to watch a movie, I ask them if they want to come, great. If they don't, I'll just go watch it by myself. That's always fun for me. Like, I just get to escape for, like, one and a half to two hours. Yeah, because I don't even look at my phone when I'm there, right? Yeah. And that, in and of itself, is refreshing. Agreed, agreed. This run will mark the end of an era in snowboarding as Sean White makes his final run in competition. Oh, and clips the wall, unfortunately for Sean White. But what a run he has had. Tell me about the Olympics. Have you been watching the Olympics? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean speaking of something that's... Uh, an escape. That I haven't actually, yeah, like an escape. Part of me has watched a little bit of the Olympics. And funny enough, like it's on Peacock. It's on my favorite platform from the standpoint of like, it just works really well. Like I really like how Peacock looks and stuff, but like I didn't even know it was on Peacock until we were talking about it. I've been watching it on TikTok. Crazy. Like Sean White is posting it on TikTok. Only reason why I know what's happening in the Olympics is because of TikTok. But again, Winter Olympics is not like, I only like the snowboarding stuff and some of the skiing stuff. But um, it's hard, man. Like it's oh, I like the skeleton too. The skeleton that I think is really cool. Yeah, that's where they're going like eighty miles an hour, kind of like on their stomachs. There's there's like a little sled, but they're going super fast down this like oh, okay, windy okay, okay. hill. Yeah, I mean, have you been watching? So I watch it in the gym. It's on like they, they have it on when I'm like working out. I'll see uh, like if I'm running or whatever. The USA is on one of the televisions, so I'll watch it there. But I'm not. It's not like destination viewing for me. I'm not getting home from work to try to watch the Olympics. But it is, um, you know, it's it's a great win for Peacock. And it, it's interesting to me to see how the dynamics change because, you know, growing up and for the past decade or two decades, having 
Olympics, the Olympics rights was was a boon for the networks because they would be able to sell a ton of advertising and be, market themselves as the official sponsor of the Olympics. And NBC and Comcast, they're doing it to drive Peacock now. And it's like they can control all the messaging. They don't have to disclose ratings info. They can sell a bunch of ads digitally. So I think it's a win for them and they're, help, they're using it to drive Peacock. And there's going to be a ton of sports on Peacock. And I think it's it's one of those things you see ESPN plus and Peacock are growing and live sports are used to be sort of all about television. And now it's, it's shifting. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's like, I don't use a cable box anymore. So normally something like this, I would just have on if I was scrolling through and I would keep it in the background, but now I have to like open an app and like click on it and then click live and you have to have an account. And I don't really like playing, you know, clips or replays. I want something just constantly going in the background. So I find it more difficult to watch now than ever before. And especially because, like, time difference in China, you know, we have to watch late, late night here. But, again, I love the highlight stuff. I think this is why it's so important, besides on what streaming platform it is, that athletes and, and folks are putting it on some of these apps like TikTok where you can get an idea of, like, highlights and stuff when you're scrolling through on your For You page. Sean White keeps fucking popping up on my stuff. He's always popping up, and I think he just had an amazing run recently, some revolutionary run. Well, like, th- so this is his last Olympics. He did not win this year, but he's had an amazing career. Yeah, for sure. Between the X Games and uh, he's won gold in the past, but he, you know he's he's getting up there. He's mid thirties, so yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool. So like, it's stuff like that that makes uh, look. The Olympics is is what it is. Like, there's always great moments in it. I think the way that it gets shared these days is tough. Yeah, Winter Olympics is not really like appeal to the spectator in most of us. It's great, and it, I'm not diminishing or detracting from what these athletes, they're incredible. They're way better at this than I'll ever be at anything, but it's not the Summer Olympics where you know people are like watching the sprinters and basketball. Exactly, and I think it'll be interesting to continue to watch like how the IP and all these things work, like who's streaming what, how these contracts are going, especially with the movies. And, you know, we're excited to chat about all these things. So, yeah, I mean, I think that in the case of today, we're, we're going to constantly be talking about themes like this one, the streaming wars and, you know, the back and forth between talent and the studios and the distributors and the platforms. And, Paul, you're always going to give us your take being the inside guy in the room. And we're so excited to do the show. Yeah, no, it's awesome to be able to work with you and, and share, you know, my thoughts on this. And, and let me be clear, I mean, no one's seeing all this stuff in real time or has, you know, perfect insight into what may happen. All we're doing is trying to make our predictions and try to do the best deals we can. So sometimes people look like geniuses, sometimes they look like fools, but it's usually something in between. I think that's the right way to look at it. So hopefully uh, when Matrix 5 comes out, they have a better time doing it if it ever, ever gets released. All right, everyone, that's our first episode of Better Call Paul. Make sure you tune in next week for another amazing episode. Definitely subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your favorite podcasts. Well, I hope you enjoyed our newest show, Better Call Paul. If you made it this far, you either love the show or you had it playing in the background and you don't know what happened, you're like, who's this guy Mesh is talking to? Well, he's the new co-host of our show, Better Call Paul. And if you like the show, make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for the Better Call Paul feed so you don't miss another episode. The link is in the description. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Talk Money Weekly. And of course, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at thetalkmoney.com 
slash newsletter. Until next time.